Um, we are in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. <clears throat> All right, my wife is a teacher. Have I told you guys that? She teaches pre-K. She teaches the little babies. And she has a TV in her classroom so they can watch movies for special occasions. And um, sometimes she'll put on like YouTube and just has like a worship playlist. They listen. It's a Christian school because they do worship music. And the other day, her kids were like, hey, Miss Hohulan, would you put on the ghost song? She's like, what? Like, yeah, put on the ghost song. She has no idea what they're talking about. It turns out she's got a version of Raise a Hallelujah, but I, like, I have no idea where she found it, but it's like this girl singing, and then like it's like a 90s video effect where it like, splits her and like multiplies her into lots of people. But like all of her clones are like transparent, so her kids decided like this is a ghost. This is a ghost singing hallelujahs to Jesus. So um, she told me that in church, and I laughed out loud. Everyone was like, "What's so funny?" Because um, we're disruptive in church sometimes. Uh, but we're going to talk about worship. We're not talking about ghosts this time. That's a subject for another week. We're talking about worship, and sometimes you guys or at least I do, we think about worship, and what comes to your mind? Sunday morning. Singing. Yeah, Sunday morning, singing, music, right? And that's, what did you say? Church. Church, yeah. We think about music. We think about the songs we sing, worship music, right? Like, that's what I was thinking about when I told that story. But worship is so much more than music. It definitely includes that, but worship is really anything that we do um, that lifts something high as supremely valuable. And so we can worship in our music. We can worship as we go throughout our week. We can worship in work. We can worship as we play through our thoughts, right? And so worship is anything we do that holds something up as supremely valuable. And sometimes our worship isn't directed in the right direction. We worship things other than God. Um, that's just how our human hearts are bent towards idolatry. Um, there's an ancient or older theologian, and he said something like this. He said, the human heart is an idol factory. So Revelation 4 and 5 is, I think, the ultimate passage on worship. Not you ultimate, but um, the supreme passage on worship. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to read it in just a minute. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry to all podcast listeners. I might cough. Um, I don't know if it's allergies. I don't know if it's that I've got a three-year-old that sneezes directly into my face sometimes. Um, so sorry about that in advance. Revelation 4 and 5, we're going to read that in a minute. What I want you guys to do, with Revelation, it's tempting to like want to analyze stuff and figure out what does this mean. You have a bunch of questions. Write down your questions, save them for later. But as we read this passage, I want you guys to just open up your imagination. Right? Like, let yourself see the stuff that's described. Let your heart just imagine the sounds and even the smells. Right? There's incense. I don't know if you know what incense smells like, but... Um, <laughs> And sure, it smells great. Uh, so just let yourself kind of picture and imagine just what is happening in this text. Uh, let it draw your heart towards worship of the Lord. We ended last week. Last week was chapters 2 and 3. And it was the messages to the seven churches. The very last letter was to Laodicea. And towards the end, Jesus says, Hey, I'm standing outside knocking at the door. If anybody answers the door, I'll come in and I'll eat with him. Which was back then just a a symbol of like deep fellowship and friendship and camaraderie. And so Jesus says, open the door and I'm going to have fellowship with you. Look at how chapter four starts. We'll start reading now. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. 
So it goes from door to door, and it's just saying, worship is an invitation to fellowship with the living God. Um, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I heard at first speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, front and back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under their wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. When the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. All right, chapter five. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and, and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and, he had t- and after he'd taken it, uh, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding uh, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne, the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Wow. So, what do we do with that? Um, Two chapters, you've got um, five different songs. So, chapter four, you've got four songs to, it just says, Him Who Sits on the Throne. And who do you think that is? So, that's God. That was an old Jewish way of just describing 
God himself. And then you've got two songs in chapter 5 to the lamb who was slain, who is Jesus. Jesus. And then at the very end of chapter 5, you've got one more song to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And so God and Jesus are worshipped side by side as equally worthy of glory and honor and praise. So what I want to do is um, just kind of break this down. We're going to have kind of a conversation and talk about worship. (laughs) So here worship looks like a lot of singing. But I want to just think through principles of what draws our hearts to the Lord. What does it look like um, to be fully committed to God in a way that holds him high um, as supremely valuable? The first thing I want you guys to see is that worship centers around God's sovereignty and his saving work. Okay, so worship centers around God's sovereignty and his saving work. One thing you see, especially in chapter four, is this idea of a throne. That's the first thing you see as you kind of enter into the vision. There's a throne. The word throne shows up, I don't know, like 40 or 60 times in the rest of Revelation. Like it is just scattered throughout this book everywhere. And of course, in their time, a throne had this connotation. It had this idea of sovereignty. People who sit on thrones are usually pretty powerful. (laughs) And so God, who's enthroned up in the heavens, is in his sovereign control of absolutely everything. There's something cool here. I don't know if you caught this. But as you read through this passage, um, both chapter 4 and chapter 5, there's kind of a word group that shows up several times. So throne is obviously a big thing, but then there's several times where it talks about circling the throne, encircled around the throne, surrounding the throne, around the throne, uh, in the center of the throne. And so it paints this picture of the throne in the middle, and then you've got um, just all these layers of angels and worshipers just kind of rippling out from the throne, um, just all orbiting around God's glory. And so the, the inner circle of the throne is these four living creatures. And I'm sure you heard that and you're like, what in the world are those? Um, it's these living creatures with a face like an ox, I think, a face like a lion, a face like a man, and then like a flying eagle. What these probably are, there's references to Ezekiel 1, and then Isaiah 6, we see cherubim and seraphim, which were just these exalted kinds of angels. So these are some kinds of angels. We don't know for sure. But the creature faces represent creation. These are the most mighty and majestic of all the creatures. You know, an ox is super strong. Lions are fierce. Um, Humans, people thought of them as wise. Sometimes you might know some people who aren't. Um, But usually humans were thought of as symbolizing wisdom. Um, And then eagles had this like swiftness to carry out God's will. But the point is, you've got these creatures surrounding the throne, and they symbolize just all of creation um, surrounding God in worship. They are sort of representatives of the whole created order. So that's the first layer. The second layer is these 24 elders. And that's another thing. People read this and they think, who are these 24 elders? What does that mean? Um, this is like a big debate. I think the best answer is, again, this is another class of exalted angels. Um, but where do we get the number 24? Well, you have 12 tribes of Israel, and then you have 12 apostles. So 12 and 12 is 24. Um, and these are the people who just represent God's plan to save the world. Right? So the Old Testament covenant people were Israel. New Testament covenant is um, with the church who's grafted into Israel. And so um, it's just representative of God's people on earth. Um, Again, these are angels. They're clothed in white. They have crowns. They're just um, pictured as being glorious and holy and pure and um, in some ways authoritative. 
So you've got these, these creatures, you've got the 24 elders, and then towards the end of chapter five, it says thousands and thousands and myriads, 10,000s, like all these angels just, again, surrounding all of these things. Um, and they just erupt in worship for Jesus's work to redeem us by his blood. And then the very end, that last hymn, this last song that's sung, is sung by every single creature on every corner of all of creation. And so again, it's the throne just at the center. And then just everything revolving, orbiting, surrounding the throne in worship. So, worship centers around God's sovereignty and his saving work. That's where we see the lamb come into play. The second thing I want you guys to see is that worship is subversive. So, that's an SAT word for you guys. What does, uh, what does subversive mean? Does anybody know? Taking what is expected and turning it around. Okay. Yeah, so to subvert something is to overthrow it. It's to um, turn it upside down. Yeah, it's to undermine it. So how does worship do that? Um, worship looks at all the powers of the earth. It looks at all the systems of our sinful world and just flips them on their head. <clears throat> and so you see a few times here uh, in chapter 4, verse 11, and chapter 5, verse 9, those songs start out by saying, you are worthy. And we hear that and we're like, yeah, God's worthy. But... Back then, all the Roman emperors would go off and they'd go fight wars and they'd come back home and people would throw these big parades for them and they'd say, hey, Emperor Domitian, Emperor Nero, you are worthy because you conquered the bad guys. You are worthy because you're reigning over the Roman Empire. So people would hear this and go, ooh, that's kind of a dig at the Roman government. <clears throat> As Christians, we say, only God is worthy of worship. So it does that, and then actually Emperor Domitian, who is probably in charge of the Roman Empire at this time, he actually tacked on the title Lord and God. And so to say, you are worthy, Lord and God, people go, oh, that's Domitian. And then you look down and you go, oh, no, actually, that's the one true God of Israel. That's Jesus Christ who is uh, worthy. So that's, that's one way that worship is kind of overthrows powers. But the other way that I think is even deeper is that worship reminds us that the ways of God look completely different than the ways of the world. So again, we're in the context of the, the old Roman Empire, and how did you conquer in Rome? You killed the bad guys, right? You'd go out on military conquests and you would wipe out the enemy. And you know what? Before the Romans, there were the Greeks. You've heard of Alexander the Great. He just marched in and killed a bunch of people. And before the Greeks, you had the Medes and the Persians, and you had the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and the Sumerians. Every single empire that has ever existed has always gained power by brute force, right? That's like how you do things in our world. But look at how Jesus conquers, right? John looks and he sees the lamb, and he's standing as if he's been slain. And um, this is why he's praised. He's not praised because the lamb overthrew all the bad guys through might. Jesus won by going to the cross and submitting to the worst that anything could do to him. Jesus trampled death by death. And that is just such a backwards way of doing things. We talked about this last week, right? And, and so even the people of Israel, all the way up until Jesus showed up, they were waiting on their long-expected Messiah, and Israel was under the thumb of Babylon and Assyria and Persia and the Greeks and the Romans, and God's people have always been waiting for this military ruler to come and overthrow their pagan overlords. And so these titles, the root of David, um, the Lion of Judah, 
those are messianic titles. And so people are sitting here waiting for the Messiah to show up and Jesus comes and the Roman Empire kills him. <laughs> that just doesn't look like victory. There's something interesting here in, in chapter 5. Um, you guys can look there starting in verse 5. I'm going to read this short little section again and I want you to compare what John hears and then what he sees. So in verse 5, chapter 5, it says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So there's that word triumph. There's that victory. There's that conqueror. conqueror. Verse 6, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne and encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. By the way, again, that's the Holy Spirit, right? The seven spirits are the Holy Spirit. The seven horns symbolize just might and strength. Seven is that number of completion and perfection. Seven eyes. We see that with the creatures as well as just symbolizing God's omniscience, his ability to see and know all these things. Um, but John hears about this conquering lion, and he turns and sees a slain lamb. And that's what the kingdom looks like. It's not what we're expecting. It's not what we're looking for as sinful humans, it's completely backwards to the ways of the world. And so worship takes our hearts and says, listen, I know that you're being discipled every single day by what you watch on TV, by billboards, by every single piece of media that's trying to grab your attention. We're discipled by Instagram. Everything that we consume, and it's not bad to be on those things or to see those things, but just know that all of those things are going for your heart. And all of those things are trying to train you to believe that success looks like the victory of this world. And so worship consistently helps to realign our hearts with God's backwards and upside down plan to redeem the world. So worship is centered around God's sovereignty and salvation. Worship is subversive. In other words, it just overthrows all the systems and rulers of this world. And then the last thing I want you guys to think about is uh, worship tells a story. And it doesn't just tell a story, but it invites us into that story. So I think I've said this this semester, I've said it a lot, but the Bible tells one big story. There's all kinds of things in the Bible. There's laws, there's songs, there's prophecy. But if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you'll see it just tells one big storyline about how God created the world good, the world has fallen, and then God sets this rescue mission in motion to redeem people um, and to make all things new. Revelation 4 and 5 kind of gives a nod to that, right? The, the angels are singing to God, the second hymn to the one on the throne gives praise for God being the creator, right? So it kind of shows the opening scene of the story, and then it brings us to the climax of the story, which is Jesus is redeeming death on the cross. And then this whole thing about the scroll, I think, is pointing to the end of the story. Most, or a lot of commentators agree that this scroll is kind of the final chapter. It's the final chapter of the story of the world. Um, what's going to be in the scroll is what we're going to see in chapters 6 through 22. And so within that scroll is, how is God finally going to finish the job and overthrow evil once and for all? How is God going to completely erase death from this world? How is God um, going to make all things new and wipe every tear from our eyes? It's the final story of his plan of redemption. So chapters 4 and 5 bring us from creation to the cross and the resurrection to the final moments of the story of the world. But what's interesting and what's exciting to me is that the point of the story is not just that we believe something and go to heaven someday. We're not just passive bystanders. We're not just um, fortunate beneficiaries, although 
we are fortunate to, to have God's grace, but um, look at the song that they sing to the Lamb, um, starting in chapter 5, verse 9. It says, They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you are slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So it doesn't say you ransom them with your blood so they can go to heaven and sit on clouds for eternity. No, the vision is that we have been brought into the family of God. We're brought into a royal family. We're turned into a kingdom of priests. That language is used all the way back in Exodus for the Israelites. They get redeemed from Egypt. They get ransomed from slavery in Egypt. They get brought into the, the promised land. And the promise that God says is, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. In other words, you will be this group of people that are meant to um, broadcast God's rule and reign to show the beauty of God's salvation to the rest of the world. That promise in Exodus was just for the people of Israel, but did y'all catch that? This is for every tribe and tongue and nation and people, right? So it brings people from every corner of the globe, hand in hand, to reflect the glory of God and the beauty of the gospel. So we're brought into the story. We have meaningful work to do. We don't just sit passively and wait for Jesus to come back, um, but we're called to reflect the kingdom in our daily life. We're called to be priests, right? That's an act of service. It's drawing people into the worship of the one true God and showing them the worthiness of the lamb. Um, That's a big deal. And I think we don't teach that enough. I think we teach a very passive Christianity sometimes. Um, and, And I want to get us off of the sidelines and get us into the game. Now, one thing that this doesn't say is that we go to center stage. (laughs) And I think it's tempting, especially in America, especially in our context where um, we live in a society that tells us it's all about me, it's all about you. But the message of the gospel is that it's not about you, and it's not about me. And I think the most important movement that we can do in discipleship is to get out of center stage to make it all about Jesus. Right? We need to decrease so that people can see the beauty and the glory and the wonder of our Savior. Um, and, and so we need to remember that there is a story and we're called to be part of the story, but we're not the main character. <laughs> we're footnotes, we're supporting characters. And what a gift that is to be, even just to be a background character in the grand story of redemption. Okay, so, so worship is centered on who God is and what he does. God's sovereignty and salvation, our salvation. Um, Number two, worship. um, Oh man, I just forgot my second point. Worship, what was my second point, guys? Subversive, good. I'm glad y'all were paying attention. Uh, Worship is subversive. Uh, Number three, worship draws us into uh, the grand story of scripture. So what I want to do with that is I just want to invite you guys into a conversation. What does worship look like? in our daily lives. Um, We are created for worship. And that doesn't mean that our options are we either worship God or we worship nothing. Like we will worship something. That's just how our hearts are created. Um, And so the problem when we have sinful desires isn't that we have too much desire. The problem is that our desires are disordered, that our desires are aimed at the wrong things. And so what does that look like? I'm going to throw it out to you guys. What do we do to realign our hearts on the one true story and center them on the Lord?
What does that look like? I feel like definitely taking time to be thankful. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times prayer can just be us asking for something, or a lot of times there are things go wrong, you can find someone to blame. Or when things are going right, and there's good things, yeah. there's a reason behind that too. So maybe just take the time to appreciate the good things that we have in life, even though they're small. Yeah. Yeah, gratitude is huge. And that all just kind of goes with becoming a minor character. We're less prideful when we're not in center stage, and we're more willing to just kind of let things roll off of our backs. Nice. Yeah, T-square. Going along with that, a lot of times in scripture, it's like the phrase prompted by thinking about specific things that God has done to say, you are worthy because of these things, like you're the God who took us out of the land of Egypt and has wanted and all that yeah. sort of thing that comes up so we can think on you know, his works, we can read through, hear all the narratives of what God has done, is yeah. doing, and will do for his people, yeah. and that can remind us that he is worthy. Yeah, so meditating on scripture, and then that draws our hearts towards, here's what God's done in the past, and that's what God's done for his people in the past, and then it's what God um, has done in your own life, just remembering his faithfulness day in and day out. What's that noise? That's the whole That would be a wild plot. <laughs> Is that water leaking? <laughs> cool, 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 cool. All right, well, we'll take care of that at another time. Uh, let me hear one more. What's one more thought on uh, worship? Grayson's thought of Thanksgiving, like, not, not, but, like, it's, all right, man, it's so important to, like, take time to be thankful for, like, every moment, but, like, yeah. we can be thankful in every moment, like, mm. I was playing golf today, and one of my buddies is, like, he's, like, super focused about being the bet, like, he wants, he wants to succeed, he's, he's playing really good, yeah. but he's getting mad when he messes up, like, that much, Yeah. like, like there, there's no need for that, like, look how much... We have, and I told him like you're playing to win. And he's, and he asked me, okay, so like, what do you play for? Yeah. And I told him, I, well, I play to glorify God, and, mm. and even in every swing, it's something so meaningless as doing good in a game of golf. Like, yeah. I can glorify God with my talents, with my effort, with doing my best, with, with striving for excellence. Yeah. But but doing every, everything that I'm given, like I have two arms. Like some people don't have two arms. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. That's a, that's a gift. Yeah. That in itself, like, I we can glorify God in every single moment in every like boring English assignment. <laughs> like, we we have the opportunity to glorify God and thank Him for just like every breath that we don't deserve. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, I would encourage you guys do those things. Pay attention to your own heart. I think sometimes we just go through life not reflective. And so we go through life, and sometimes we find ourselves just getting angry. And we're like, why, why did I get angry over that? Like, I shouldn't have gotten angry over that. You know, sometimes we find our lives just, find ourselves just with no passion, just going through life with apathy. And, you know, sometimes there's other causes, but sometimes you just have to think, like, what am I worshiping? You know, if I'm holding up my fantasy football team as supremely valuable... Um, yikes. <laughs> it was a rough weekend. Um, but really, like, what makes you angry? And, and should it? Like, there's things that should make us angry. Like, Jesus got angry. 
Um, but just paying attention to your internal life and recognizing um, maybe there's some spaces of disordered worship. So I'm going to pray for us. If you guys have any questions, you can send those in the QR code. We'll worship through song. Um, and then I'll get back up and answer questions from last week and this week. Uh, Lord, we love you. Thanks for your word. Um, thanks that you've invited us to be part of what you're doing. Um, help us to uh, just, just walk and see ourselves as a kingdom of priests called to reflect your beauty and your faithfulness and the greatness of the gospel to a world that um, so desperately needs uh, the light of your love. Help us to uh, worship in spirit and in truth, to recognize that worship isn't just the songs we sing, it's not just going to church, um, but worship needs to be um, just part of everything that we do, um, whether we eat or drink or play or uh, just have fun uh, with conversations, with our thought life, that we would see all of that as acts of worship that we can direct um, towards you and towards your son. Um, and so we love you. Amen.